0: Sometimes you have to wait. You may be waiting for your wedding day to arrive. And so you're waiting. You may be waiting for a child, your child, to come to their senses and understand what's good for them. You may uh, may be waiting to get the job that you need. You may be waiting for your health to improve. Sometimes we have to wait and sometimes we're waiting for God, aren't we? We're waiting for God to work in our life in some way. Now, of course, in that situation, the temptation can come to us to give up and to move on from God. In the, book of, in the books of Chronicles, one and two Chronicles, God's people are waiting. They're waiting for the promise of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. This book that we're looking at, two Chronicles, it's, it's a two-part book. There's first Chronicles and second Chronicles, and it's what's called an Old Testament book. That is, it's part of the Scripture. That was around before Jesus. And in this scripture, we see that the Jews had come back to the land from what was called the exile. The exile, as we just heard, was when the Jewish people, the the, the people of God, were taken out of the land of Israel and taken to Babylon because of their sinfulness by King Nebuchadnezzar. But in a short period of time, they were able to come back. And when they came back, they rebuilt the temple under Ezra. And some of you may have read that. They rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem under Nehemiah. But there was still no king, no son of David ruling on the throne. There was no king to rule over this kingdom, this kingdom of God here on earth. They were waiting for God to finish his work. They're waiting for God to bring his king, the Messiah. Now, the books of Chronicles declare to the Jews who are waiting, who have been waiting for many generations now, it declares to them that God is not finished with this world. God is not finished with this world. God still has his plans for this world that he is bringing about and he will bring his Messiah. Now, I just want to raise the question here, why wait for God? Why wait for God? Why be faithful and wait as we wait for God to fulfill his plans and purposes for this world? If you're a Christian, why should you wait for God? Maybe you're not a Christian here today. Why should you wait and have an expectation of God doing something and be shaping your life around that as you wait for God? Well, it's because of what we're going to see in 2 Chronicles today. 2 Chronicles is going to spell out to us, as it's spelt out to the ancient Jews, why they should wait. And it's going to be because of what God is going to bring. Because of what God is going to bring, it's worth waiting for. Now, just a brief summary. In the books of in the, the first book of Chronicles, in chapters 1 to 9, there's that list of all the genealogies. And I spoke on that in Lidcombe this morning. But basically, those genealogies show the nation of Israel that they are the people of God, they're the chosen people of God, and that their mission to be God's people remains. Then from chapter 10 to 29, which is the rest of First Chronicles, it's all about King David and his preparations to build the temple. And that's all about how, how they're going to be the people of God. It's going to be through the ministry of the temple to the world and through the son of David who was David's son. What we then come to in the book of 2 Chronicles, which is the final book of of these two books, the final part, is we're now going to see in this final part that as they wait for the future, the prophet's going to tell them about the past. And this is one of the things with how the prophets often work. When the prophets are saying to God's people, we want you to wait for the future. They tell them about the past and what God has done in the past. And in this case, the whole of the second chronicles is about the sons of David, and it's going to talk about lessons that you learn from those sons of David. And what you learn about those sons of David in the past is going to help you to know what the Messiah will be like in the future. If you're a Bible reader, you may have heard of this idea in the book of Hebrews and Colossians, where it talks about the Old Testament being a shadow and a copy. And so this is what we see here. The prophet is going to talk about the messianic kings of the Old Testament and he's going to look at them, teach you certain things and then this is going to help you to know what the Messiah to come is going to be like and the Messiah should be waiting for. So, let's make a start. 2 Chronicles. The first nine chapters of the book of 2 Chronicles are all about Solomon and the glory of the kingdom of God under his hands. Now, before I talk about Solomon any further, I'd just like us to look at the Bible's description of Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 5 and 6. I'm just going to read these out. You may like to follow along with me. And I just want you to notice how Solomon is described here. This is King David speaking. And listen to how Solomon is described. He says, Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord... Over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever uh, if he is unswerving in carrying out my commands and my laws. Now, just have a look at some of the things that are said there. First of all, where does Solomon rule? He rules over the kingdom of the Lord. That is, Solomon rules over the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament being the kingdom of God? Well, that's how it's described. It's the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. Now, what next do we see about Solomon? Solomon is going to build the house of the Lord, and I'm going to come back to that in a moment. He will build the house of the Lord... And how is he described in his relationship to God? God says, he will be my son and I will be his father. Solomon was the son of God. Solomon was the son of God. He was anointed by the prophet. The word anointing is the word for Messiah. So this is who we see in the book of Chronicles. We see Solomon, the son of God with God as his father, ruling over the kingdom of God. You can see how this book of Chronicles is important, isn't it, and what it's demonstrating to us. Now, what do we see during this time of Solomon? Well, we see Solomon in all of his wisdom. We see the kingdom of God functioning as it should. And so you'll know the stories about the Queen of Sheba and, and the other people who come to Solomon seeking wisdom and to get wisdom from the God of Israel. And Solomon gives his great commands, you know, with the the, the different, the hard decisions that he's got to make. And um, the the Queen of Sheba comes and is impressed with him. It's also a time of great trade. We read in those first nine chapters that the nations of the world come and they're trading with Israel. And he's got a fleet of ships and he's getting horses from Egypt and selling them. And so it becomes a world center of commerce it's the center of the world for wisdom it's the center of the world for trade it's also a place a time when israel has peace and safety now there's not too many times in israel's history when it's at peace and safety even today it's israel's not in peace and safety but under solomon God's people in God's place are under peace and safety. There's wealth and abundance. It talks about uh, Solomon making gold as common as silver. And then I'm going to come back to the temple. You see, Solomon is the temple builder. Let me just read to you from 2 Chronicles, chapter 5. Uh, we had it actually partly in our reading there, didn't we? But Let me just read it uh, for you. The ark's brought back into the into the temple that he builds. And then we read in verse 13, or go halfway through verse 13. Um, then the temple uh, the, the, then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their service be, uh, because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled The temple of God. And that is, when Solomon built the temple, the fire of God came down on the sacrifice and the glory, the presence of God, filled the temple so that people couldn't even go into it. Now, what do we see that messianic figure, Solomon, doing there? Well, we see something very important demonstrated to us. The temple was the place where God and humanity met. That's what the temple is, it's where God and humanity meet. And so here we see that the messianic figure is the one who brings God and humanity together. This is what the Messiah does, he brings God and humanity together and we see this first demonstrated in Solomon. This is the, the kingdom of God in all its glory. Now the first lesson we need to get from this and how the, the ancient Jews would have got from this, is that God is faithful. God is faithful. They could read this and say, God promised to Abraham to make us into a nation and to speak to the, to, to the nations of the world, and that's what happened. God was faithful. He faithfully kept his promise in the way that he was faithful to Noah, in the way that he was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful under Solomon. Solomon. And we can look back at that and see God's faithfulness. Now, we do that in a similar way, don't we, as Christians? We look back in the Scriptures to the life of Jesus, to the life of Daniel, to the life of the Old Testament saints, and we can see the faithfulness of God there. Now, this is why I want to encourage you to be reading your Bible. Because when you're reading your Bible you see God's faithfulness. You hear about God's faithfulness. And as you're waiting for God to fulfill his purposes in this world, you're reminded that we're waiting on a faithful God. Now, as these ancient Jews are waiting for their Messiah, Chronicles moves on from chapter 10 to the the end of the book to talk about good... And bad kings to give them examples of these Old Testament messiahs, some of whom were good and some of whom were bad. And I want to start off with the the main bad one and what we learn about him. His name was Jeroboam. Jeroboam. And that's one of the key Old Testament kings that you need to remember. Now, what happened with Jeroboam? Well, what we find is that Solomon started well. He started well, but He took on many wives and his wives introduced the worship of the gods of the other nations. And God's judgment came. And part of God's judgment was to split his kingdom in half. And there was the 10 northern tribes who were in the the north and the two southern tribes based around Jerusalem. And God gave the 10 northern tribes to this man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam. And what he said to Jeroboam was, Jeroboam, if you serve me, then I will make a dynasty for you. Your sons will rule on the throne, but you must serve me. You must serve me. This meant for Jeroboam that his people, the people of the 10 northern tribes, would have to leave his kingdom and go to the kingdom in the south to worship That was the one thing he had to do. He had to let his people, who were the Israelites, go from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. And he had to trust God in that, didn't he? Like you imagine if you were a king and there's another kingdom nearby that you don't particularly get on well with and your people have to leave three times a year and go to that other kingdom to worship God. That really called for trust on his behalf, didn't it? Now, let's see what he did. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 15. We read here, speaking of Jeroboam, and he appointed his own priests. These were not Levitical priests. He appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat and calf idols that he made. He didn't trust that God would look after him. And what he did was he made an alternative religion for the Israelites in the north. He said, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. Just stay up in the north. We've got our own priests up here. They're not Levites, but they're still good priests. And we've got our idols up here that we can worship in the north and in the south. And this is what he did. He set up his own religion. Now, there are people who think that that's a valid option today. There are people today who will think, and maybe you're one of them, that you can take a bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion, you can click on this, you can click on that and and take what you like. But that's not the case. It's God who determines how we worship Him. It's God who says the correct way to approach Him. And Jeroboam was saying, no, we can just make up our own religion our own way. He doesn't trust that God will look after him when his people go somewhere else. But more importantly, he puts his own interests above the interests of God's people. This is his real sin. For his own sake, for his own security, for his own desire to be king he says God's people I'll just change the religion for God's people for my sake and so he puts his own interests above that of God's people now that is not what the Messiah is going to be like when he comes if you're an Israelite reading this and you're hoping for the Messiah to come you're going to read that and you're going to think the Messiah is not going to do that is he he's going to put the interest of God's people first he's going to be a good shepherd of God's people Now, as you read through the book, you'll come across other people like Ahaz and many other kings in the book, and uh, they don't listen to God's correction. They follow the gods of the other nations. They treat all the religions of the world as if they're true. They ignore the words of the prophet. And again, if you were waiting for the Messiah to come, you imagine you're an ancient Jew and you're waiting for the Messiah to come, and you're reading these stories you would know that the Messiah is not going to be like this. When our king comes, he's not going to be like these kings. The book then moves on to the good examples. And there's a lot more time spent on these good kings. And and it's interesting that when you read the book of Kings, and then you compare it to what you read in Chronicles, that Chronicles gives a lot more of their good traits for the same king. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason why Chronicles actually tells you more of their good points. And that is, he's presenting here the pattern of what makes for a good king, of what makes for a good Messiah. As you're waiting for the Messiah, here is what the good, the good Messiahs did. They may not be the right, the, the fulfillment, but they were still good. And what made them good? What made for a good king? Well, let's have a look at two of them, Hezekiah and Josiah, and we're going to see what made for a good messianic son of David in the Old Testament. Well, the first thing we learn about this man named Hezekiah is that he responds to the word of God. When he hears the law of God read to him and the prophets, and the prophets speak to him, he obeys them. He obeys them. Is the obedient king. Now, in Western culture, we have a real problem with obedience. We do not like the word obedience. In some cultures around the world, obedience is oppressive. But in Western culture, we don't like asking people to obey. Rather, we prefer to educate them so that they'll make the right choice. Though at some points, we will need to enforce things. But by and large, we don't teach youth anymore to honour and respect their parents. Uh, obedience, I'd want to argue, in the Western world, gets a bad rap. And to say that I obey someone else, I obey a wife, obey a husband, or anything like that, is seen as degrading, is seen as actually you know, a terrible situation to be in. Obedience has a, a, a bad name in our culture in our Western culture. It's not a virtue. You know, one of the things I said to my children when they started to go to parties, I said, now, if people are taking drugs or, uh, you know, getting really drunk there, then what you can always say to them is, I'm not going to do that because I want to obey my father. Now, they never took that up. I... (laughs) it'd be embarrassing. You'd feel like a real idiot, wouldn't you, to say, I obey my parents. <laughs> now, of course, that can be oppressive, and I'm not talking about oppressive parental control like that, but I'm just saying there is a place for honouring and obeying your parents. And it's actually reasonable when your friends are taking illegal drugs to say, no, my parents won't let me do it. And But see, the fact that we even feel embarrassed about that shows us that maybe we're not thinking the right way about obedience. Um, you could at least say, I obey God. <laughs> you know, If you're not going to obey your parents, you can at least say, I obey God there. But obedience is godly. And when we obey God, we are truly human. When you obey God, you are truly human. Uh, again, in, in particularly the white Western culture, and I'm not sure how it works out in the... The Chinese Western culture, so I'm, I, could, I can only speak from my own experience, but the idea in, in, for white people today to say, I'm going to obey God is, is seen as you know, a terrible thing to do, but it's actually, a, a, it, it's what makes you truly human. A, a human obeying God is what it truly means to be human. So that's the first thing, Hezekiah, he's obedient to God. Secondly, he trusts God even when it's difficult and painful for him. For Hezekiah, the situation came when the, the mighty Assyrian Empire came against Israel or Judah at this time. And it came and it was uh, encircling Jerusalem and it was under siege and it was a, difficult, a very difficult time. And the, the temptation for Hezekiah was to make an alliance with Egypt or someone else to get some help. But the prophet Isaiah said to him, do nothing, just trust God. Now can you imagine that? Imagine if some country was coming to hammer Australia and uh, and a prophet says, no, you don't need the US, You, you just wait. I'll look after it. That would take faith, wouldn't it? That would take faith. And Hezekiah did that and then miraculously... A whole lot of sickness broke out through the Assyrian camp and they pulled up and had mass deaths and they left. And I believe in Israel today, you can still see the siege ramp they were building. It's all this earth, like tons and tons of earth that they were building. And apparently it's still there, but it's, it's, it's incomplete, you know, sort of two and a half thousand years later. So he trusts, even when it's difficult, even when it seems crazy to trust, He then cleanses the temple. Look in chapter 29, 2 Chronicles 29, verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. So he goes up to the temple. The temple had fallen into disrepute and and he he fixes the temple up. He, He puts the temple right. So he hears the word of God, he trusts when it's difficult, he cleanses the temple, and then look in verse 10, what does he do there? Verse 10, now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, and so he makes a covenant with the people, he makes a covenant with the people. See, this is what makes for a good king, he obeys, he trusts even when it's it's like a suffering time for him, uh, he, he cleanses the temple, he makes a a covenant. Have a look at the rest of verse 10. Um, so now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. All of what he's doing here is actually turning aside the wrath of God. See, the messianic kings in the Old Testament, when they repented and did things like this, they turned aside the wrath of God coming on God's people. In chapter 30, verse 1, what does he do there? Hezekiah sent word to all of Israel and Judah and, all, and wrote letters to all of Ephraim and Manasseh. That's all the people up in the northern kingdom who were left. Inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. So here we see, what is it that makes for a good king? What, what makes for a good Old Testament Messiah? What is it you should be hoping for? Well, one who is obedient to the word of God, one who cleanses the temple, one who makes a covenant with the people, who celebrates the Passover, who turns aside the wrath of God and establishes the kingdom of God. That's what Hezekiah does. That's a summary of his life. Let's move on to Josiah. What do we see with Josiah? Well, Josiah lived at a time... When God's word had been neglected and the, the book of God, God's covenant, is found and it's read to the king. And when he hears it, he obeys. He obeys the word of God and he goes throughout the land and removes all of the idolatry throughout the land of Israel. Uh, in, have a look in chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles. Let's have a look at what he does. Chapter 34, verse 8. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent uh, Shaphan and Azaliah and uh, Masaiah, the ruler of the city, and Joah. And Joah has the recorder to repair the temple of the Lord, your, his God. And so what does he do? He, he, he fixes up the temple. He hears the word of God, he obeys, he, he fixes up the temple, cleanses the temple so it can operate again. Come down to verse 31. Verse 31. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the people. So he does a covenant act. He makes a covenant with the people. And then in verse, uh, chapter 35, verse 7. Let's look at what he does in chapter 35, verse 7. Josiah provided all the lay people who were there a total of 35,000 sheep and goats for the Passover offering. So he celebrates the Passover. But not only does he celebrate it, but this Messianic king provides the sacrifice for the Passover. This is the good king. This is the good Messiah. He provides the sacrifice for the people. And then in, verse, uh, in chapter 34, verse 28, let's have a look at that, 34, 28. Um, now, now I will gather... So as he's speaking, uh, the, the prophet is speaking to him and he says, Now I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and those who live here. And so for a short time, Josiah's actions were able to turn aside the wrath of God. Throughout his reign, he was able to keep God's wrath at bay. So what does Josiah demonstrate to us? As you're waiting for the messianic king to come, and and your prophet who wrote Chronicles is saying, look at the good kings of the past. What were they like? Well, what were they like? They sought the Lord, that they seek God and they obey him. When there is difficulties and suffering, they're faithful. They cleanse the temple. He will make a covenant with the people. He will celebrate the Passover and provide the Passover sacrifice. And he'll turn aside the wrath of God and bring the blessings of God to establish God's kingdom. This is the type of king they're to be waiting for. Now I just want you to imagine for a moment if you were a son of David, listening to these stories of these kings, because we know that sons of David, who were all potential messiahs, because that's where the, son, that's where the messiah will come from. It's going to come from from David's line. We know that that they were listening to this book, because they're actually mentioned. In 1 Chronicles chapter 3 there's a list of all these sons. And so there were the sons of David, each of whom could have been a potential messiah listening to this book. Imagine what they would have thought listening to this book. They'd be saying, oh, I need to be like Hezekiah, don't I? I need to be like Josiah. When I, you know, whoever this son of David's going to be, he's going to have to do these types of things." Well, Josiah is not the one. Josiah is not the king. He's a great king. But we read about him later on in life when he goes out and he assumes too much. He assumes that he is the one who's going to bring God's kingdom and he dies in battle. He's even warned by the king of Egypt who said, no, go back, my fight's not against you. But he goes out and he dies in battle. And as we heard with the book as it ends... That, Babel, that, that Israel's sins continue and in the end God raises up the Babylonians to come and destroy the, uh, the, the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel and take them into exile. And so we see here that Hezekiah and Josiah and, and others like Jehoshaphat were great kings. They were better men and women than us. They were better than us but they were not able to do what was required. That is, by their works, they could not save themselves or God's people. Even though they tried, they were not able to do it. Salvation could not come through the works of these men. You see, sin really is a problem. When you go to the Old Testament, there aren't many people better than Hezekiah and Josiah. They are great guys. But even these men who did such great things were still weighed down by the weight of sin. Now, this is true for all of us as well. We need to be clear that on our own, we cannot save ourselves by our own works. We cannot think, well, I'll be good enough. You may be good, you may be better than someone else. But you're not better than Hezekiah, you're not better than Josiah. We're not good enough by ourselves. Sin is a problem. For God's kingdom to come, for God's people to have the wrath of God turned aside from them permanently, God is going to have to do something. God is going to have to do something. And God does do it when God himself comes to us as the Messiah. And I hope you can see how Jesus fulfills the book of Chronicles. I hope you can see that it's not just a verse here or there, because we can often think about the Old Testament that way, can't we? We can think of, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Well, there's this verse here, and there's another little verse over there. Maybe there's a bigger chapter in Isaiah 53, but the whole of 1 and 2 Chronicles, is fulfilled by Jesus. The whole thing, when you understand what the books are about. It's not just a verse here, it's the whole thing. And I want to challenge us here. We can often think that the Bible was written for us, that God wrote the Bible for me. But it was written for Jesus to read first, and then for us later. These scriptures that we're reading here, these stories of Hezekiah and Josiah, were read by Jesus. And as Jesus read them, the Holy Spirit used the scriptures to guide Jesus in what he needed to do. You see, Jesus does what we see these kings doing. He fulfills what 2 Chronicles is about through his obedience and seeing what these great kings did. Because he is the Messiah who truly seeks and obeys his father. He is the one who is the true son of God. When he suffers, he remains faithful. He makes the covenant with God's people, the everlasting covenant. He cleanses the temple. He provides the perfect Passover sacrifice and he turns aside the wrath of God for us. He establishes the resurrection kingdom of God that will never be removed. When he brings this temple the temple that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels, it's the perfect temple. It's the temple of his body. You see, the temple was the place where God and humanity met. Now, how close do you think you're going to be with God when, when you go to be with God in his kingdom? How close do you think you're going to be? Well, Jesus shows us how close our fellowship with God will be because Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus speaks about his body as the temple in John chapter 2. And so here we see the temple that Jesus brings is the fulfillment of the temple where God and man are perfectly united. And as we put our faith in Jesus... We're united into that relationship with God. That's how close you're going to be with God. That's how close you are through Jesus. And you see, the Gospels, they record for us how Jesus is this Messiah that was hoped for in Chronicles as he does the things that the kings of Chronicles did. And so Chronicles is written for us. It is written for us so that we will fix Our eyes on Jesus. Now, to conclude, in the introduction, I said, "Is God worth the wait?" And I want to say, God is worth the wait. Why is He worth the wait? Well, He's worth the wait because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why it's worth waiting for God, because with Jesus we have that perfect forgiveness of sins through His sacrifice on the cross through his resurrection, we have that sure hope for our own future life with God. As I said, Jesus brings God and humanity together in himself. He brings the resurrection kingdom. It's worth the wait. If you're a Christian, wait for what God is doing in this world for Christ. It's worth the wait. If you're not a Christian, I want to say, God is, uh, Jesus has brought the kingdom of God and it's exactly what you need. It's how you worship God. It's where your forgiveness is. It's where your hope is. It's where your future is. You should put your hope and faith in him as well. We should not fix our eyes on Hezekiah and Josiah as the ancient Jews did, great men as they were, but we should fix our eyes on Jesus who fulfills all of what these kings were pointing to. Amen.